privilege this afternoon to introduce Claudia, um, who was the coach of the championship winning Townsville Fire and the WNBL uh, in her own right as coach and had been assistant coach uh, uh, on occasions before that as uh, uh, assistant coach uh, in the championship winning Townsville Fire. In case you don't know, Army and the Townsville Fire have a long association. Uh, in fact, Army sponsors the Townsville Fire uh, uh, certainly last season, this season, and we have a, a long relationship uh, with the Fire. Uh, however, Claudia is uh, very accomplished in her own right, so professional engineer, works uh, infrastructure for the Townsville City Council uh, and was part of the remediation arising from the floods in 2019. And uh, Claudia played uh, basketball for the Canadian women's team, including representing her country at the Sydney 2000 Olympics. Uh, aside from that, uh, I hope someone uh, writes a Wikipedia about you. Uh, because I think you've got a great story and we're looking forward to hearing your story uh, this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you and uh, thanks for having me. If you can't hear me, just tell me and I'll yell out louder. Um, so I guess um, uh, I was going to speak so a little bit about leadership, about some of the stuff we did with fire. Um, I'll talk about the monsoon and some of the things that we did there and probably a little bit about my job now at council leading some of the teams that I, I work for in there so we've covered all that so lots of basketball I was fortunate to, to captain my um, country and play got to play pro you know, France and Spain and then Australia and clearly we loved it here and I never left there's no snow so from Canada Quebec I don't know if anyone's been there it's, it's freezing all the time um, and then so not just a sports jock um, got my two degrees and uh, started working once I retired, once the knees didn't work anymore as project manager and then worked my way up and <clears throat> got to work on some really big projects, you know, like the Flinders Street redevelopment was $60 million project and uh, entertainment center refurb, all those ones, and then um, left to go coach full time and then came back as uh, general manager of infrastructure, probably in fleet, so in, in that role, my nominal role. Uh, I manage about 400 million of the capital expenditure for council and about 260 staff, so all the buildings we own, all the fleet plant equipment's under me. Um, and recently, uh, my director retired. Uh, that position got opened up and I missed out. I didn't even get an interview, so I was a little bit upset about that. Um, but one of the feedback I got was I didn't have enough experience in the water side of the business. And so just that general manager has resigned. So I put my hand up to act until we could um, fill that role. So currently my role is um, general manager of Townsville Water and Waste. So responsible for all the water, sewer, dams, and all the rubbish and landfills. Um, so that's 450 plumbers and truck drivers and rubbish truck drivers. So it's quite exciting. It's a good change. I'm enjoying it. Um, so I'll talk about so a lot of the things that we did with the Townsville Fire and that I learned through becoming, um, or through, through head coach through trial and error. And one of the big things, and it applies in everything I do, you know, with Townsville City Council as well, in terms of the team culture and really 
you know, there's lots of ways you can define that. We clearly, we just defined it as that's your brand, that's how we do things around here, our culture, and that drives how we behave. And, um, and you know, everyone, everyone impacts um, the culture and it's really important um, how, you, how you discuss that. So the big lesson for me in my rookie season, so my first year as a head coach, um, I guess for me as an athlete, I always put the team first. It was just natural, that was just the way it was. I just thought that, you know, I'll do whatever I need to do for the team. That might come back, yep. And uh, what I realized is that it's not natural, not everyone um, does that. And, uh, and so the biggest mistake I made my rookie season is really not talking about the team culture enough. And, um, and then so we implemented that, talking about it all the time, and just setting out what your values are and clearly sticking to them and emphasizing. So it's not, and you hear coaches say this one all the time, but it's not what you teach, it's what you emphasize. So it's what you say over and over again. And I was talking to Darren at lunch, and um, <clears throat> same thing at Townsville City Council. So our culture currently is probably the lowest it's been in a long time. Lots of people are fearful. There's really bad culture. And we're working really hard to try to improve that and put some actions in place that will make people feel proud about working at Townsville City Council, but also you know, working a lot more collaboratively with each other rather than trying to bust each other's balls all the time. So one of the things a new CEO has done, he's changed our values to serve, and it's quite simple. It's is for safety, so everyone goes home safely every day. E's for excellence, R is respect, V, value, E, enjoyment. I mean, they're always sort of similar what you end up with, but I think it's about how often you speak about it and how often you reward people for living those values. So what we did with, and you know, the leaders in, in driving that culture, if you're a leader, a team leader, is really important. And um, someone said to me one time, and it really stuck with me, is that any, anyone, so everyone, no one, sorry, your influence is never neutral. So you're always either positively influencing or negatively influencing, but you're never neutral. All right, so you gotta make sure that everyone on your team understands what your values are, and you're talking about them all the time. And so with the fire, we created a shared vision. And so we, our motto was, um, you're entitled to nothing, grateful for everything, right? So don't expect anything, nothing's, nothing's given to us for free. You don't have to work for it. You're not gonna get a free call from the refs despite Susie yelling at them every time. So we're gonna have to work for everything. And then we had three things that we spoke about a lot. So leadership, so that there's, there's about a thousand different definitions of leadership that you can look, at, look up. Um, personally, that's my favorite one because it's quite simple, it's easy to remember as well. So that's your ability to make those around you better. Mental toughness, so I should remember it, is your ability to focus on the next most important thing. So that's something really, obviously really important in basketball, um, not just you know, throughout the season, but throughout games, you know, things happen really quickly, you might have a turnover, you might miss a shot, whatever it is. We need players to be able to just turn it around quickly and, yeah, go from offense to defense or stop the play. They, they can't be dwindling or be sad or not be sad, but be upset about turning the ball over or missing a shot because someone's scoring on them. Right, so that one's really important for us. And then selflessness. So because we're professional, we are a really good team and we have lots of good players, um, but there's only five players on the court. So there's lots of, I guess, managing egos and managing court time and who gets to shoot the ball because uh, if you have the best player in the league, so we, you haven't had Susie, right? But you're trying to get her to come in. Mm. So Susie Bakovic, I don't know if anybody knows her, but she's probably the, what she is, 
the best player that's played in the WNBL, the Australian Basketball League, the time MVP of that league, and played for us. And she's um, really big personality, but a really good player. So when you have her on your team, she's going to shoot half the shots. And rightly so, because she makes all the shots. But again, you need to put good players around her so that you know, otherwise they'll just double and triple team her. Uh, but it was, so it was really important about being selfless because you've got players that have come from other teams that might be used to getting 10, 15 shots a game and scoring 18, 20 points to now playing with Susie and you're asking them to score 10 or 12 and only get eight shots. And so we reminded them often about that. <clears throat> Sorry, going back to this one. So how I said I learned from my rookie season. So in, what I ended up doing in my second year, we put something called, um, so every athlete comes in and we do a, a personal development plan or performance plan, so a personal performance plan. And you know, they fill it out and then I would sit with them and we'd go through them and it's about you know, what you want to improve on the basketball court, uh, might be what you want to improve nutrition-wise, how you're going to deal with your injuries or what physical attribute you might need to improve on. So some players needed to have better core strength, a better jumping ability, or stronger shoulders, whatever it was. We had that all set out. We would work with that before the season started and try to set goals. Um, and then another one in there we always included was obviously um, just mental performance. And funny story, so you had Joe Lukens come in. She's a bit of a legend. She's very good. Um, we worked, we've been working with her for years. What we actually found was that um, athletes were reluctant to go see her when we called her the sports psych because no one wants to go see the psych. So we started introducing her in the last three or four years when I was there. She was the mental performance coach, so now she's just another coach, and athletes are real comfortable going to see coaches. So that kind of changed the, um, you know, the, you know, well, you're seeing the psych, so you must not be playing well, which isn't the case. To, she's just a coach that can help me be better. Um, <clears throat> so that worked really well for us. So what we introduced to try to talk about our culture more often and make it um, just a, a, an open subject and a transparent subject, because obviously when you're managing egos and personalities, sometimes people feel hurt or feel uh, unvalued and you need to try to draw it out. And so we, and we implemented um, something called Tell the Truth Monday. No, we called it Tell the Truth Tuesday. But so it, was, it would be after the game. So we play all the games of WBL are played on the weekend, so Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. We'd usually have a video session on the Monday, and that's when coaches, because video never lies, you cut up all the bad stuff, good stuff, and you can show the video, you know, this is where we want to get better, this is what we need to do better, et cetera. But prior to doing the video session, so we had Tell the Truth Monday, and so you, as a player, you had to come prepared with two good things that either you, a teammate, or a coach um, did or contributed, and then one thing that needs to improve. And I might not call on everyone, but I was always going to call on three or four people. And initially, it was it was, it was quite cumbersome, and people were a little bit uh, I guess reluctant to share in front of their peers, especially when it came to things that weren't doing well or things that we could be doing better. Um, but just because we stuck with it and we kept emphasizing the importance of it then it would also highlight things like, you know, it'd be like, well, we've spoken about, uh, you know, the poor defensive communication, and this is the third time in a row, third week in a row that that's come up. So 
hold yourselves accountable at training rather than always having the coaches say, hey, you know, we've spoken about this, what are you doing about it? Now they would start to hold themselves accountable. So at training, if something would break down in the defensive communication, then, hey, remember we spoke about this, this is what we want to prove. And it got better, I must say, it probably took two seasons by the time it was as effective as I was hoping it would be. But um, another thing that it really highlighted, and I'll talk a lot more about Susie at the end as well. She's just a really special athlete. She's, yeah, like I said, a big personality. And she, um, she, so competitive, the most competitive person I've ever met in my life. But what happens is she'll piss people off because that training, she's never wrong and it's always whatever team she's on the ball. And so then people get pissed off before she might say, hey, pass me the ball, I'm open. You know, and so as a player, that might throw you off when the best player is yelling at you. And so, but through the Tell the Truth Monday, we were able to talk about it because uh, rather than everybody saying, oh, Susie's so mean and she yells at me, they'll be like, hey, you're going to get yelled at. The referee's going to get yelled at. The coach is going to get yelled at, even though that's not appropriate and she shouldn't be yelling at her teammates. But how are you still going to play your best when Susie's just had a go at you? And so then we were sort of drawing that out and helping people understand and manage those emotions in a game, especially, um, to be able to play better when you're being yelled at. Because I guess we all knew it was going to happen and rather than not talk about it. And at that point now, Susie's 36, 37 in her career. She's not going to change. And while she, and she's, yeah, we probably shouldn't tell the story if she's going to come in. But there's one, one game and um, she was playing terrible. She's never the first sub, but I had to take her out. I warned the assistant coaches, I'm like, be ready, I'm taking Susie out. She's the first sub coming out. I think game had only started two minutes into the game. Anyway, so she sees the sub come in for her, and she sees that it's for hers, and then straight away she gives me this death stare, like, fuck. And so she runs right up to me, and she's like, that's terrible fucking coaching, and then runs and sits down on the end of the bench. I was like, oh. Anyway, and she settled herself, she got it all out, and then I put her back in and she was brilliant. And then, all right, so her and I obviously caught up after the game. I'm like, mate, you can't be telling me that in the game. And she's like, I oh, know, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, but I just get so angry and I get so competitive and it just comes out. And I said, oh, well, we need to work on some techniques. So we did lots of work with Joe about how she can control that and what, you know, what she says might be, we just need to make what she's saying more constructive rather than yeah, don't turn the ball over, although well, that's not helpful. Hey, next time, look over here, because that defender is here, is more helpful. So working on her language was really important, as well as working on in making sure everyone was aware of how to plan about managing how you're going to play through that, um, I say getting yelled at, but you know, just through that different types of behaviors that were happening on the court. So Tell the Truth Monday, is, I guess, was one way to just uh, break down barriers, hold each other accountable, and then just highlight some of the good things, um, you know, so how people were living through our values. So especially, we especially focus on these three things. So if you could demonstrate examples of how people had lived those values, um, th those are the things that we want to come out. Excuse me. I do something similar now with, um, and it's, it sounds silly, but anyways, with my team managers, got six team managers that we meet regularly, so once a month. And uh, <clears throat> on the agenda that I've got regular meeting is at the bottom, it's, it's staff recognition 
And when initially I started doing that, I said, yeah, I just want you to nominate someone from your team, someone from another team, whoever that's gone above and beyond and supported you or done a good job, and I'll give them a phone call and say, hey, thank you for doing a good job. The team managers well. And it probably took six months where they would come to the meeting and they'd be like, oh, oh I, haven't, uh, yeah, I haven't really thought about it. Whereas now, that we're continually emphasizing that and repeating that, they'll tell me midway through, without the meeting, they're like, hey, can you ring Andrew over at Fleet? He did such a good job helping out so-and-so. So I guess just that ability to make sure that we're recognizing staff and rewarding them, because it, all it takes is a thank you and people feel a lot of value out of that. So leadership, so we, we define that as the ability to make those around you better. And so I spoke a lot about, so there she is with that aggressive face. Um, when in her last season, she got injured and uh, a significant injury and couldn't play for four, five, six, half the season pretty much. Anyways, in one of the first games that, um, so first road trip, we went away, played against Bendigo, and they're not necessarily a great team, and we should, probably should have beaten them. And um, that's Michaela Cox there. She's the player that's played the most for us, New Zealander, also been to the Olympics. And she's, like, she's the complete opposite. She's the, the super teammate, um, always positive, will never um, step out of line, is happy as a coach. She's a dream player to coach because she's happy to play any role. She can play 30 minutes, she can play 10 minutes. You know, she's never going to complain, and she works her ass off. She's the fittest person on this team, hands down. And um, so she was our vice captain, so she became captain. So when we went on the road, obviously Susie didn't travel because she was injured. And um, anyways, we, long story short, we ended up losing this game that we shouldn't have. And uh, Michaela came to see me after the game, and she's like, Claudia, can we bring Susie on the road next week? Well, A, we can't afford it because we can't afford to travel and injure player. Or B, no, why? And she's like, well, she said, I knew, I knew in warm-ups that we were gonna, not playing well. She's like, people were sort of dilly-dallying around, people weren't taking it seriously. And she said, well, I just don't have it in me to bring them together and have a go at them and to shake them out of it. She's like, but Susie would have done it. And so I sort of highlighted just the power of Susie because ultimately, and Susie just wants to win. And so I, get, I think that's why, no, I think that's why. I know that's why that people, um, I'll say, put up with it or accept it or are willing to accept the, the, you know, the being yelled at because she wants to win and she wants you, she needs you to win and she wants you to play your best because that's the only way they're going to be successful as a team. And so I think that's, you know, while I say she's yelling, she yells and she's aggressive, she's actually doing it because she wants the greater good. And, you know, she's, it might sound a bit sexist, but she's definitely like, like a bloke. She'll have a yell at you and then the next minute she'll be like, hey, let's go for a coffee. Whereas um, some of the female athletes we deal with are like, mm, I'm not talking to that person because she had to go with me until we apologize and work through it. So Suze is a different breed. So she was sorely missed when she was injured on the sideline. <clears throat> so I'll talk about a little bit about mental toughness. So well, I've mentioned that's our ability to focus on the next most important thing. So like Darcy here is probably about to have a turnover or lose the ball. And it's about not being lost in that moment, being upset about it. But it's about sprinting back on defense and making sure we get that stop. And so we have lots of examples of how that's, you know, and I think that 
applies in anything in life because you're always going to have some ups and downs and whatever you do and some challenges and how you deal with those situations is really important and your ability to get back up and continue with whatever it is that you want to go on and so in my rookie year we went to Perth and played a game and they smacked us I think we lost by 28 or 30 we were never in the game um, and it was terrible anyway so and we flew home on the red eye and it's a really really long flight to be on when you've just got your ass kicked and you, did, you know, through your mind is going through everything that you did wrong. And, and I remember thinking that for the, probably the first four or five hours of that flight, you know, I'm out of my league, I don't know how I got this head coaching gig, I'm you know, not ready for this, um, and doubting myself. And then um, and I just had a bit of a light bulb moment. I'm like, no, what's the next most important thing I need to focus on? And then we had Adelaide at home in two days time. I'm like, oh, I just need to start thinking about Adelaide and preparing the team for Adelaide and how we're going to beat them. And just, I guess, getting away. Because otherwise, you'll just keep chasing your thoughts. And I'm sure Joe would have done a lot of work on that. But just chasing your thoughts into that negative tunnel. And it's real hard to dig yourself out of it. Um, so Joe talks a little about, uh, hopefully not repeating everything she said, but what you say is what you see is what you do. And so when you've got big challenges in front of you or you're worried about something, it's about you know, just focusing on what, what it is that we control. Similarly, going into grand finals and that type of stuff, especially when it comes to basketball, we break it down by quarter. It's four quarters, so all, right, all we want to do in this first quarter is keep them to 12 or less. Uh, you know, we want to get 16. We want to make sure we get two fast breaks. So just rather than saying you know, in 40 minutes we need to do all these things, uh, right now this is what's most important for us in these first 10 minutes and we just break it down into chunks. Makes it a lot more manageable and people cope a lot better. And obviously at halftime is in when we put in some adjustments and say, all right, uh, that's what we're doing for the third quarter and the fourth quarter. So switching completely now to another role. So in my Townsville City Council role, um, this is the local disaster center. I'm not sure if anyone's been up there, but we've had, had actually quite a few uh, Defence Force personnel up here, we actually they ran a bunch of you guys, did a bunch of training for us half recently on the uh, military appreciation process and working out so that's how we, um, that's the process we use now, disasters, most likely scenario, most dangerous scenario and use that in all of our planning and triggers and warnings, etc. So in this um, disaster centre, it's on Daly Road and uh, it's in my portfolio as general manager of infrastructure. I've got the emergency management team under me. And it's a brilliant facility. Obviously, as you can see there, every agency has a liaison officer that gets to sit there. So it just really improves that communication, which makes it really quick to get information across to different agencies. So in the monsoon of um, 2019, so it looks really empty here. And you look at it. I remember the first time I walked in there, oh, wow, what a waste of resources, all these laptops and computers. And then fast forwarded two weeks in the monsoon and went, holy shit, there's not enough chairs for everyone. And um, so the monsoon was obviously quite challenging for a lot of reasons and really some really good partnerships that we had and we obviously depended on you guys quite heavily during that period. Um, I, through the default of my director being away and he got stuck in Adelaide, I became then the uh, the chair of this, so in, in the recovery effort, there's four groups. 
Um, there's the built environments that are responsible for all the infrastructure. There's the environment responsible for anything to do with the environment. Um, social, which is the people one, social and human. And then there's eco uh, economic uh, recovery, which obviously is all about the businesses and coming in um, the city. And so I became, because he was away, the chair of that. And so we, um, and I quickly crash studied the plan, which I should have been doing when I realized he was away. But uh, so the first day that we met and uh, on that, in my group of the built environment, we had the army, we had um, uh, QFES, Ergon, main roads, airport, all the critical infrastructure. And so we're all sitting in a big room and everyone's looking at me going, right, what are we doing? Everyone's keen to do something. And I remember um, it had been a lot of high pressure situations, but it was probably one of the first times in my life where I was a little bit overwhelmed. I wasn't quite sure what to do. Uh, but thankfully, this fellow here that's been in about a billion disasters for Queensland Fire and Rescue assisted, and we got um, the city back up and going. So our objective was to uh, you know, restore critical infrastructure as quickly as we could. And one of my favorite stories that we had, it was myself, the, the general manager of our maintenance crews, and uh, we had Paul Pembroke and Chris Cookus, I think, was in our team. And uh, so one of the first things we had to do was get rid of all the mud, and mud obviously everywhere across all the streets in the city. And um, we have six street sweepers, so we had big maps out, and we're trying to divvy up yeah, what sections we would do, and then what sections you guys would do. And the general manager of our maintenance team looked at Paul, and he said, I didn't think the army had street sweepers. And looked at him and he goes, no, mate, I've got soldiers, lots of them with brooms <laughs> so, so out they came and they swept up all the mud and uh, anyways and we got the streets back open similarly we had um, Chris so we had briefings we had morning and afternoon briefings and every agency uh, gave an update on the work they've been doing and um, so following the mud the next bit was obviously recovering all the uh, all the rubbish Everyone was throwing out all their furniture, et cetera. And so same thing, we divvied up the city. So it was a bit of a funny disaster, not a funny disaster, but I guess um, strange disaster where the cyclone affects everyone. And this monsoon only really affected probably 40 to 50% of the population. And um, so was, again, same thing. We had our uh, rubbish trucks uh, curbside collection, and we repurposed a lot of our staff to pick up some of the rubbish. And, in, um, and you guys as well. So we, rightly so, gave you guys all of Adalia. That's where all the four bedroom houses that are all fully insured, everything just got chucked to the street. And Chris came in for his morning briefing and very army-like with all your briefings. It was three minutes straight to the point. Uh, we have been allocated the Adalia section. We will commence uh, tomorrow morning, 0600. We'll be complete by tomorrow afternoon, 0300, at which time we'll extract ourselves. I said, oh, okay. If you think you can do all of Adalia in 24 hours, I'll be impressed. And so he came back in the afternoon and he said, we are not finished Adalia, we will be here till the rest of the week. I guess there was a lot of rubbish and I think a little underestimated that. So it was a, it was a good working relationship. And I think, um, so some of the similar principles applied in this instance where it was, creating that shared vision and making sure that what our goal was was to just restore critical infrastructure as quickly as we can. And we spoke, we speak about it a lot 
in council now that we're going, going I spoke about before, this cultural survey, we're trying to improve our own internal culture and we speak about in times of disaster, Townsville City Council is a whole different machine, we're a whole different beast, we operate so efficiently, we operate together, we make sure the city's safe and we, yeah, we're all on that same page and that's because you know, the goal is really clear, the direction is really clear and so everyone's able to work together much easier for whatever reason. So that's, I guess, our mantra now to try to get, you know, in times of disasters, we can be this efficient and this collaborative. Now let's make that our BAU. And that's about really having that clear vision of what our purpose is and what our job is and how it drives that same vision all the time. We eventually rebuilt the whole, it took a long time. Many, didn't many people here get flooded? Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about um, Susie. So I spoke about <coughs> her leadership style. And I'm assuming Brett Tate probably would have the same thing. But I've never seen anyone with such mental strength as, as Susie. And, and I say mental strength is probably not the right word, but belief in her own abilities um, as this person. So she's, um, well, I guess we're about extremely competitive, so she always wants to win. Um, has this unwavering belief that she can win and that she can win the game for, for everyone. And she does have a massive fear of failure, but, and she works super hard. So she, um, you know, as an athlete, super important you know, to take care of your body. Um, you know, so I'm assuming similarly with you guys and your jobs, you need to take care of your body. So that's about getting the right amount of sleep, drinking the right amount of water, uh, getting, so she knew she was getting older uh, when she played for us in the last couple of years, you know, three, six, six, seven, three, eight, with a bad back. Uh, regularly got her massage every fortnight. Always, you know, got her um, eight hours of sleep, doesn't drink, because um, that was the only way she was gonna extend her career. And we do, um, so we do do with the athletes, we have wellness checks every morning and when they wake up on their phone, I just you know, I slept eight hours, it was good sleep or it was bad sleep, I'm feeling good about myself or this is sore, whatever it might be. And, and so what that does is every day as a coach, I, I just get, uh, it's, just a, it's just a graph really, but anything that's sort of an anomaly will just prompt the coach to be like, hey, you're right, something wrong. And then just have that conversation and just a bit of a check in to see if everything is all right. Um, it's another way for the athletes to be able to communicate, but like, not, not feeling great today. And then that'll just prompt the conversation to just, hey, can I unload this off you, or unload this on you, or whatever it might be. Um, there was, and so I don't know if you guys know what she does now that she's retired. Anyone there? <laughs> she's a counselor, so she, uh, she got elected last council election, last March. Um, so she's counselor for this division, actually. Annadale, Douglas, et cetera. So I remember when she rang me to tell me she was gonna run for council. I'm like, oh, you've only ever been an athlete. I don't know how you got to know anything about running a city. Um, but, and I don't know why it surprised me, but she's, she's brilliant. She's obviously, I work quite closely with all the counselors and 
she is such a hard worker, which I guess translates into anything. So she, yeah, she, and she's really competitive. So she wants her division to be the best division. So I'm sure she rides around her bike and she takes photos of broken things and sends them to me and says, "Good call, you go, gotta fix that fence over there, gotta fix that pothole." She wants her division to be the best. But she's been a really good. Um, I guess it's. I was talking about. We had a briefing with the mayor this morning, and we were just talking about Susie and how her career of being this elite athlete and you know, obviously being mentally tough has translated really well into her being a counselor. Um, a, because she works so hard. B, because she's competitive, but she wants to be good. So she knows she has this huge learning curve to you know, work out how it is to be a good counselor, but she just wants to be so good. So she's just a bit of a sponge and she's trying to learn it all as it is. Um, and yeah, she just she doesn't want to let people down. She wants to be the one that's still winning in her mind. Um, so we had uh, another game where um, we'd, lost, we'd lost three games in a row. Sorry, this was our third loss against Sydney here at home. And uh, we were down. Yeah, we were, we were down one. And Susie got to the foul and she had two free throws. She's normally an 80% free throw shooter. She's a very good free throw shooter. And she missed both free throws, and then we lost the game. So that was our third loss, which, you know, in a season where you only get about 20 games, three losses is big to take. Um, and she, it was rang her the next day, she was really upset, she was crying, lost the game, she was blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, and you say all those things as a coach, like, well, it shouldn't have come down to those free throws, you know, you'll be all right. And the next week, so it was four days later, we're playing against Bendigo. And uh, this time we were up one, so they're fouling us. And um, I put I put another player to the foul line, so I didn't inbound the ball to her, so she could shoot the free throws to win the game. Mia, she missed them. And then the next time out, Susie looked at me, and she's like, "You give me the ball, I'll win this game." And yeah, rightly so. She stepped up there, so she yeah, even though she'd lost four days earlier, lost the game for us, missed the two free throws. She just stepped up, went swish swish won the game. And I think that ability, which goes to that mental toughness, but the ability to focus on the next most important thing, she has that in spades. Like she will, yep, I might have lost that game last weekend, but I'm already over that. And I know I'm gonna be able to win this game because I believe in myself. So her mindset is if we could bottle that, uh, lots of people will be very successful. Uh, and then I just touch on, um, a little bit about so diversity. I think um, yeah, it's probably important for for, um, for a group like you guys. It's certainly similar to the group that you know, I work in. I probably would go to meetings where I'm the only female. There's 50 blokes in a room all the time, and uh, in the construction world, especially in the water world. And uh, I think diversity is really important. And and I've got that. So this. Um, that guy there is actually my husband, and he was not an athlete, but he learned basketball obviously through being a no choice and being dragged around everywhere around the world watching me play. But he ended up being a coach, but he learned the game a completely different way. Um, so he learned it through doing you know, video tutorials, reading books, and not through playing. And so he explains things in a completely different way, or he understands the game in a completely different way. And, uh, and that's really valuable. So as a head coach or as a leader, 
or in any organization. I think just that ability to get some diverse opinions is really critical um, to success. And, you know, like he will have lots of discussions at home about several things and he'll be like, oh, you know, why do you, why do, you do that? You know, when the player drives, why do you help that way? And I'm like, I don't know, I just do it because I've just always done it. And but he needs to know it, explain it and, and make reason of it. So I think it was really helpful. And similarly with uh, Luke Brennan there and Mike Froggle, again, like they played different positions what I played. So they just bring you different views and different opinions about, about anything. And then as a head coach or as a leader, you can make the decision, take that information if you want it or not. Uh, and then I guess the critical part as well is that those assistant coaches then follow your decision and support it. But if you've got you know, the ability to make sure that uh, you can be transparent why you've made that decision based on the information that you have or the best information you have at the time, um, then they'll be able to follow you. I think the... Um, New CEO at Townsville City Council is really clear on that, and I really appreciate that some of the changes that he's made. Um, he, he's not for decisions by steering committees or control groups or any of that stuff. He goes, no, you're the general manager. I want you to make the decision. So you can go get all the intel and go get all the information, but it's not decisions by committee. It's your decision. And so I think that's, it, and then it's really clear as well. So then who's responsible for the decision and, um, and the accountability. But yeah, you can go get all the diverse opinions you want and then you just gotta be comfortable with the decision you make. Um, and it's also, yeah, I guess that's one way to empower your staff. And we, we try to do that at work quite a bit. You know, some people are reluctant to you know, delegate and let people make decisions. I think the important thing with that is you, you um, yeah, if you're the leader that always steps in and tries to guide them and tell them what to do, you're not really you're doing a disservice, really. Yeah, they need to make those decisions and learn. Uh, but then as a leader, you need to be able to accept that there might be some mistakes. And as long as they're not repeatable mistakes, you should be fine with that. And then we can all, yeah, I guess, improve and, and try to make some improvements. And that's just my favorite slide because Michaela Cox, who's that player I spoke about, so she's about to play her 12th season, just had a baby. Um, <laughs> she had her three-month-old and wanted to do the, she got asked to do the uh, top of the hill, what's that, queen of the hill race in the city. And um, she was only, she had a C-section, emergency C-section as well, and was only going to walk up the hill with her stroller, but then I saw her photo next day with her with the championship winning the ribbon. I said, Mick, you said you were going to walk. And she said, yeah, but there was another lady with the stroller and she started running, so I couldn't help myself and I sprinted the whole way up. <laughs> um, so she's, yeah, again, exceptional person and maybe one day you guys can get her and speak as well, a little bit of a New Zealander. But yeah, I guess just I should bring this to my work now, actually. These are all just things that we talk about a lot, um, especially with younger athletes in terms of doing all the right things. If you want to have a good career, those are simple things. Um, and, you know, I think if you're the leader and you don't do those things, then it's easy for people to just not do them. So we had, um, again, I talk about the new CEO. I'm really enjoying his, 
his leadership. I think it's been really good learning from him, but he, um, his meetings and you know, the previous CEO and the directors, they're always so busy and they're flat out. Things are always running late, meetings get changed, whatever. No, this guy is meeting start on time and they finish on time. And it's really good, it's really, and then now, you know, it just translates down and everyone's got a lot more, you know, meeting discipline, for lack of a better word, but it's important because we spend a lot of time in, in meetings. But he's set those, that standard, and now that standard is everyone does it. And it's, you know, really simple type stuff and a bit of a no-brainer, but just because he's doing it and now everyone's doing it. So I think the impact, I guess, never underestimate your impact and how you're influencing uh, people around you whether that's up or down. Um, I think you always, I'll go back to what I said earlier, which is you know, your influence is never neutral. What are some other definitions of leadership that you've um, heard? Be the example, that's an easy one. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I find that when junior soldiers actually come to you for advice, it's not, won't mean that you're a leader, but I think it sort of leads to a sort of thing looking for you for guidance. So they're not going to go to the person that they don't trust, they're going to go to the person that they trust and see as a leader. Which I guess then begs that question then how do you build the trust and why can some people build trust and others can't? It's comes down to rapport that you build with the individual. Yeah. Which plays a massive part. Yeah. I had. Um, so I know I mentioned it, but I'm just acting in that other role with Council of Water and Waste. And this uh, scientist that's in our team, so Laura, she's the uh, she's a very important role. She keeps us all safe. She's the drinking, sorry, she's the water quality, <laughs> drinking water quality officer. So she's the one that's responsible to make sure that the water that comes out of our tap is, is safe to drink. And, uh, and I had to brief the um, councillors and the exec on you know, the blue-green algae, that issue. I don't know if anybody had discolored water last year, and there was a little bit of taste and odor, because we've got some algae in the dam. And uh, that's highly possible it's going to occur again this, this summer. So I was just briefing them on that. And uh, she helped me do the whole presentation, the PowerPoint, et cetera. Anyways, and she stayed back one day on her um, day off to do it and came in when she was on leave during the school holidays. And, uh, Anyways, I tried to go down to her desk to say thank you. She wasn't there. So I just left a post-it note, Laura, yeah, thanks for all the help, Claudia. Anyways, this morning at the briefing, she goes, that's the first time someone said thank you to me in four years. She's like, a post-it note. She goes, yeah. I was like, oh. you, know, you hear those things, and I, it makes me sad that that's how we treat our employees because I think she's really valuable. And yeah, she, that's. The biggest risk we have is you know, poisoning the whole city by drinking water. It's not going to happen, by the way. We're, we're in good hands. Uh, but I thought, I thought it was a little bit sad that in four years, that's the first time someone said thank you to her. Yeah. Or is yeah, disappointing anyway. But you're right, building rapport, so asking people about them. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, and that was a big challenge with the fires. Um, <laughs> which is why I'm no longer a head coach, because there's just not much money in women's basketball, unfortunately. The gap, the, the pay gap is huge between women's sport and, and male sport. So one, N, one NBA player makes 70, 70 times what a WNBA player, that's the average. That's quite a bit of a pay gap difference there, but 
Um, I've got 10 players, and so my best one is Susie, who's making, you know, she's probably the best paid in the league. And then my bottom three players out of my 10, my bottom three players are making $5,000 for the year for the season. And you're asking them to come to every training, come to every game, do all the extracurricular stuff, go to school, do all the speeches, and they're getting five grand. So the, and then the ones that aren't playing either, they're not getting the court time of the shot. So I think you know, that's a real challenge in terms of making sure that they feel valued because without them we can't train properly, we're not going to win championships. Um, and you know, and them feeling respected as well, and understanding that yeah, how they do contribute to the success we have on the floor, even though they might not be on the floor during the game. But without them, again, we wouldn't be winning championships. So just understanding like how, how the role contributes and making sure that they know that is important. Did anyone else have a definition of leadership that they'd like to share with the group? Yeah, man. Obviously, we have our organisational uh, one for leadership, which is influencing <coughs> us to achieve the organisational goal, which we're obviously pretty comfortable with because it meshes with a lot of um, But I could pretty well cut that short of just anyone who can influence others to willingly do anything. Yeah. Um, and whether that's you know, positive or negative counts as, as leadership, and that's really important to recognise as well. Yeah. Um, perhaps shifting away from leadership would be better to. Um, in your, I guess, your role as a, a counsellor, you probably encounter a, a fair bit of red tape. And so, how do you, or do you have uh, uh, potentially methods, attitudes, ways of doing things that help you push through what can conceivably be extra steps for the sake of extra steps, because you're to achieve ultimately what you're motivated? Yeah, uh, yeah. That's a good question, and I guess there is, and I, so there's a few things there. Um, so understanding why there is that red tape is important. Um, you know, I guess because we're a council, we're legislated, and we're spending, you know, we're spending ratepayer money, so our decisions need to be good decisions, and they need to be transparent. Um, yeah, I can't just go fix the street in front of my house because there's a few ruts in it. Um, it you know, every decision we make gets scrutinised under a microscope, so. Um, I think um, just having clear processes to try to speed up some of the red tape stuff. Sometimes we just have red tape to have red tape. And back to that decision making. So who's accountable and who's able to make those decisions? So the, the, the lower we can push down the decision and have clear guidelines as to how you're supposed to make that decision, um, whether that's financial delegation or you know, project scoping or whatever it might be. If I can delegate that down to a project officer and give them clear rules and guidelines and how they can make that decision, then I'm comfortable with that. And I can defend it up. And I can try to remove some of that red tape. Uh, but then there's obviously some instances where it just has to go, um, has to go through all that red tape. And I think probably the, the important thing there, and because staff do get frustrated with how you know, six people need to sign off on you getting a pair of boots, well, I think that's silly. Um, so, yeah, while I'm trying to fight that battle there, I still need you to go get those six signatures, go get a pair of boots. And it's just explaining the why, why those things are in that, yeah, why those procedures are there. But there was, there's some really good, really good stuff on, uh, I think it's Toyota, that uh, he speaks about, you know, you can have, if you have really good procedures, 
you can have average staff and be really high performing because the guidelines are really clear and the procedures are really clear. You can have really high performing staff and ship procedures and get nowhere. Um, if you don't give them the yes, tools to stay. Uh, you spoke about uh, tell the Tuesday or Monday, whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, depend on the day. We uh, we have the same thing practically after any activities that we do the AARs after action reviews. Yeah. Um, do you keep a record of those things that you pick up and regularly reflect or review to see if improvements have been made? And yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that's a good question. Um, you know, and we do, and similarly at council, what we'll do lessons identified or lessons learned, whatever you want to call them, all the time, and then they get filed in a drawer and then the event happens again and yeah, that's still in that drawer. So the, the ability to go back and track and then see if you have improved, um, that's key. And, uh, and so I guess there's different ways of doing it. Certainly in basketball it's probably a bit easier because we have so much statistics and data that we can use from game to game to show that things are improving or not improving. There's lots of data freely available. Um, I know in council that's something we struggle, not struggle with, it's probably the wrong word, but no, there is a lot of data, how much of it is useful and how much of it is, is valid data is, is, is challenging sometimes. Like, you know, we we'll t talk about you know, measuring performance. We have work orders, but well, we've got thousands of them. Like, we'll, we'll do 1,800 work orders in a week throughout the whole organization, you know, and then some. So it's only as good as the data of yeah, the truck driver entering into the thing. So if he's getting a bit lazy, he might have done yeah, 10 potholes in the day, but he'll just charge it to one work order and close all the rest. So it looks like all those potholes got fixed, but it cost us zero dollars. So I think you need to have some good systems in place that, yeah, because he's like, oh, I don't want to spend half an hour, which is fair. I understand that as well. And sometimes, you know, the connectivity, because we're with Optus and we don't have good connectivity when you're in the outreaches of the city. So there's all these challenges that make it difficult to get that really good data. And so you have to try to massage it all into what's useful to measure performance and then what's useful for the staff. Because ultimately, I just need him to fix the potholes as quickly as he can, as cheaply as he can. So if he puts it all to one number, fine. But yeah, it's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. But with basketball, you're getting shooting percentages, you're getting yeah, defensive stops, points per possession. There's about, yeah, there's so many things you can track. And then with video technology, you can, yeah, you can say exactly how many shots you make in that corner as opposed to that corner. So we're going to force them to that corner. Like there's a lot of information there that's quite fun to play with if you like numbers. Yeah. So Michaela, that New Zealander, she's quite, um, and Joe really helped with, sorry, I'm going to digress into another chat. Joe really helped with in terms of how um, the players take in information and how best they can, they can um, I guess, uh, absorb info quickly, so especially during timeouts and during halftime, et cetera. And so yeah, some people are very visual, some people are auditory, et cetera. So Michaela, for example, that New Zealander I spoke about, um, she, she can't have too much, because um, then it just turns noise, turns like noise to her. It's like every pregame talk, she would sit right there in front of me, but she'd have her hands down, hands in her head, sorry, head down, and then she'd play with her hand. That was it, because then that just let her focus on just my words, and that was fine. Um, Darcy Garvin, because I always have my little whiteboard about with my notes that I want to speak about. 
she was always trying to read my notes. So what we ended up doing then was writing the freaky things on the back, so then when I was holding it, she could actually read it as well. Um, so Joe, Dr. Joe that was here, she went through every athlete, and so I knew exactly, I mean, it was really valuable. I knew exactly how best to communicate with every single one of my players, and that was really, really useful. Kind of diverged into something else there, but yeah, I don't, you know, obviously we don't get that opportunity in, in everyday work to be able to have that information, but I guess through learning with your team and your staff, you'll know how best they like to be communicated with. Because everyone's different. Yeah, I used to, when I was talking to my section commanders when I was a platoon commander, uh, I used to write in big letters and basically memorize what I was going to say and then just put it in the circle. We'd all be lying in the circle and, uh, and just talking because I got my version of leadership, it's called heroic uh, or inspirational. Um, and I always got taught that you got to look them in the eye if you want them to do something for you. And so, but they preferred to read uh, oh, right. <laughs> what it was so they could memorize it. And uh, that's how I used to do it. Yeah, yeah. quite or, common. Similarly, like scouting, when we would do scout to prepare for teams, so we would always do a scout report, which had exactly you know, probably their top five actions and how you're going to defend them, which way you're going to go around the defender, etc. So that was that was a written report. I mean, we spoon feed these athletes. Then they had video on every player that they could watch. Uh, so we'd watch it as a team, but they'd also have it sent to their. So we use this huddle. So they also have it all on their mobile phone. They could watch it before the video, before the session, if they wanted to. And then some athletes really learn by doing. So we would walk through it on the floor. So you know, you come here, you're going to step that way, you're going to do this. You know, we'd walk those ones through it. So really, come game time, there were no excuses. <laughs> They'd been given that information multiple ways. You know, and I guess it's all about providing them all the tools to be able to succeed when you're on the floor, because you, obviously you got no time to think, then you're just reacting. Uh, so in your heightened profile as an uh, athlete, coach, and now general manager, it's fair to say that you would have had your fair share of uh, criticism and negative reporting. What methods did you put in place to sort of push that aside, uh, especially uh, if you lost a final series or um, in the floods, for instance? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's, well, I think that's only normal, so I think, um, and probably being an athlete, I guess, um, you know, and it happens now at work as well, like, we had, we had one session where all the general managers of infrastructure, there was four of us in infrastructure, and, and the CEO gave us a good, not beat down, but he gave us a good lashing about some issues that were happening. And, and it was quite funny, because the other three were the three guys, and they all came out of there like, well, you know, really down and, and depressed, and I'm thinking, well, he can't make me do push-ups or runs, so it's not that bad. But uh, I think because you've been that athlete, you've been, uh, I've just been you know, told, you know, that's wrong, you need to do it again, do it again, do it again, and so not afraid of feedback, uh, which is different to criticism, but, you know, so if I'm getting feedback from, you know, and I've made a mistake, that's fair. I'd rather know so I can improve and do it better. Um, and I think that's how you need to look at it, is they're telling you, because they want you to be better and they think they believe in you. When it's criticism, then I think, um, and it's not useful criticism that you might get from fans or other coaches or whatever it might be, 
And you just have to block it out and not disregard it. So I think, you know, just surrounding yourself with your support circle of who believes in you is really important in those times that you're copping it. Because um, then it's just noise and you just got to block it out. It's not useful and it's not helping you get to where you want to be. Yeah. So these players uh, earn little money in the WNBL, certainly compared to the male professional sports. Uh, Brent Tate said yesterday, the thing that sets the edge from elite sportsmen is their competitiveness. You've said it about Susie, probably about Michaela Cox. So, uh, and there'd be players who can only cut it in the WNBL, can't, don't necessarily have the physique or the skill to go to the WNBA uh, and contest there or to go to college or whatever. Um, what motivates people to, uh, your players, and I'm assuming the coaching staff, to get paid uh, a paucity of money. Uh, you've no doubt got to uh, scrounge for resources. What actually motivates uh, players to be as competitive as mm. they are? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's different for different people. Um, and you're right. So yeah, I, I think the league is getting a bit better. So the uh, minimum wage is now 15,000. So at least the bottom three players are all getting 15 grand a year. And there is some progress being made, but you know, they're clearly not playing because they're going to be rich one day from basketball. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's a few things. I know that for me, it's about uh, being able to compete. Uh, it's not something you get to do for at work. Uh, you, know, you can't be the first one to the drink fountain or photocopy or whatever. Um, so just competing, people that really drives people, uh, and then you know being able to be your best, and then being part of a team, I think is a big one that um, is important. I think you know when you're the coach or the club, you know clubs play a big role in that, in fostering that um, team culture and being proud of you know and being able to be part of something special. Um, so I think those are some big motivators for some of the players. And, you know, a lot of them. It, that, you know, not most, I mean, most of them are from outside of Townsville, so they're moving up here to, to be part of the fire, so it's, yeah, it's important that they feel part of something that's for the greater good and that they're being able to be pushed. I think people really like to be pushed sometimes. Um, so I would suggest, yeah, so that would be some of the motivation. Holding a trophy. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty special, yeah. And I think, you know, the club, the Townsville Fire, um, you know, there's eight clubs in WNBL all around Australia, and we're really fortunate here. So we have great relationships with you guys, a big sponsor, JCU, because Townsville really is a small town. Obviously, we don't have all the big corporates that Sydney would or Melbourne would. So um, it's really, you know, and it, it's, hard to, um, it's hard to recruit players to come to Townsville. So, uh, yeah, young, or it might be 19, 20 year olds would rather play in Melbourne if they could. Um, and they'll play in Melbourne for less money. But then they come here and they get here and they're like, oh, this is awesome. You know, it's really good, like it's a great club. We have really good support. Um, you know, we get to do some really, yeah, really fun things like with you guys. We put them through that obstacle course a few times. 
uh, in the gym here as well. So we get to do some really fun things. We, um, they all went up, a few of them went up in helicopters up to Harvey Range. Um, and we get to do lots of community benefit type of activities, whether it be in schools or um, uh, with some of the, lots of the, lots of, there's a big program we run with kids in care, so especially females that are in care, um, you know, displaced from their families. And so I think that, that's a big attraction and we're lucky, I guess, it makes the Townsville Fire probably one of the more special clubs in, across all of Australia to be able to have all these, you know, extra things and the weather is obviously is beautiful as well. Not like Melbourne weather. Or Canberra, that's probably the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have we got it? Have we got it? Oh, yeah, sorry, I got another one. Uh, yep. I mentioned uh, during the floods that you had to take on a position of high duties um, and how it would have been beneficial to our understudied uh, mm -hmm. the position above you. Uh, do you have any programs or training now in place that rectify uh, that kind of fault that was on there? Yeah, yes, yeah. Um, so we do do now a lot, like I said, we do, we've impl implemented that military appreciation process and we've put well, probably over a hundred staff through that now, that process, just because we, you know, staff are always on leave or staff leave, et cetera. Um, so that's been really beneficial. Uh, we do do now some exercises prior. Uh, we did one which was, um, yeah, so like full COVID, so there's COVID throughout Townsville, so everything's uh, locked down and there's a cyclone coming and then, you know, how are we gonna handle that situation? Because we probably won't be able to meet at the LDCC, um, you know, and then how do we make sure the city's safe and we still got water and electricity? So we've done a lot of that exercising and planning now. Um, and then it's probably, it's also about making sure that all the deputies of those people that are in the roles know that they're the deputies which was my mistake, yeah. So communicating those out. So we've, the local disaster coordinator, Wayne Pretty, has now sent all those plans to everyone that's deputy and said, make sure you've read this, so-and-so's down, you're the next in charge, so you gotta be able to aware, aware what your responsibilities are. Yep. Can we go back to the, uh, the picture of the- LDCC? The Jenny Hill. Yeah. Um, just, to explain how it works. So uh, <clears throat> this is over on um, Walcock Street in Garbutt, brand new facility, uh, Wayne Preedy, the... the uh, local disaster coordinator? Yeah, the local disaster coordinator was uh, the SSM of B Squadron, 3rd, 4th Cavalry Regiment when it existed up here, uh, like the APCs, Bushmasters, uh, down the road. So uh, when, a disaster happens like the 29th of June this year when Townsville went into lockdown for the COVID. Commander 3 Brigade sits where that uh, army trousers are. Next to uh, Commander 3 Brigade's uh, the Chief of Police. Uh, um, over here at the main table. Now, th I found this really interesting uh, from the management perspective uh, down uh, the right hand side of the main table, as you look at it, is like the police um, uh, watch supervisor, I think he is, or ops manager. There's fire, there's ambulance. Um, so they sit down that side. 
uh, down this side, and I found this super interesting, uh, is like uh, Townsville Commerce, I think, Lisa Wolf was sitting yeah, down so there. That's the, yeah. um, so it's called the Townsville Desi Local Disaster Management Group. Uh, Jay Hill is the chair of that group when it gets activated, so currently it's in stand-down. Um, and these are the core members, um, and these are supporting agencies all around. Uh, exactly right. So we've got, so that's uh, the director, my director. So he, he's the uh, emergency response group, Townsville City Council, and then police, QFES, SES, uh, Townsville Enterprise, Townsville Hospitals in there mm -hmm. as well, Definitely. and Ergon. They're, so they're all the yeah. core members. So they're voting rights in terms of uh, any decisions that the local disaster management group will make. Uh, and obviously the, all those decisions uh, will get tested in courts later. So um, in that monsoon, there was a decision to open the gates ahead of um, what the emergency action plan says for the dam gates. Uh, that emergency action plan is to protect the dam wall. The decision to open the gates was because of all the rain that was still coming. Uh, but obviously it proved that it didn't make a difference in the end. There was that much rain that whether we open them or not. So obviously that decision got highly scrutinized and it's been through a number of iterations to come back and say, no, the right decision was made. But any decision that this group makes um, obviously uh, might affect people's lives. And so it gets scrutinized, yeah. And I've only, I've only ever been to that uh, sort of the lockdown in uh, June. Um, but I found it, it was fascinating because we think as a military that, uh, you know, we possess all the power and around the table, uh, the quality of information, the inputs of information, they were asking questions about uh, how much hotel space is available from the Townsville Enterprise lady and uh, she went away and found out how many beds could be made available in hotel rooms where we going to have to quarantine, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So uh, behind all of this is, uh, is this group. Uh, Three Brigade and Combat Training Centre have also supported the council uh, the last three years that I know of um, with uh, uh, enabling the, the group to understand the military appreciation process. So we don't realise uh, that our process for uh, coming up with a decision essentially in battle has significant applications to uh, uh, groups such as this in the management of disasters such as these. And uh, I know for, for the last three years, we've done that training about the military appreciation process, which is, which is great because it's interesting also that we, the military, are now listening to lessons from, uh, you know, a captain yeah. of uh, uh, the council and, uh, uh, an elite sports person in their own right. So um, uh, I think we've got a lot, lot to learn from each other, but that's essentially what happens. So. so that big room where everyone was in was here, but back this room right behind it is the intelligence room, and that's where we would have all of our uh, flood engineers, 
Um, we had Tim Klassen that used to be with you guys, the GIS, he was brilliant, did all the mapping for us uh, with all the photos and the mapping on, the, on our GIS system. Um, he was in there full time, seconded from, from the army. Um, we might have some, you know, all of our uh, dam engineers in there. And so they're doing all, looking at all the different scenarios, especially that we had that possible cyclone Kimmy that came, so we were in there and they're looking at most likely, most dangerous, you know, and that, that one was a really challenging one because the three different models had it, you know, one was striking 24 hours, the other one in 48, anyways. So we had like about six different scenarios going, but with that process, now you got your triggers that sort of identify which scenario it's gonna be, and then you've got all your planning, and we had all the comms and all the messaging, and um, so yeah, it's, it's been really useful, actually. Yeah, we love it. It's quite simple. We've got all the templates set up now that we just populate stuff into them, and, um, and off we go. We feel much better prepared, yeah, it's good. Come on, someone's surely got one more question. If that model's successful for now, has that then been ported onto other councils around Australia, or is it a localised council thing? Um, it's 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 only as far as I'm aware, it's only localised townsville, and it's probably a lot of it due to our local disaster coordinator being now XR and having that great relationship um, that we've been able to implement it. Brisbane does it, obviously. Uh, they've got seven brigade there. I'd assume uh, one brigade does it with uh, second division now being responsible for domestic operations. I'm assuming their influence certainly goes into um, uh, the, the state uh, disaster management, uh, not necessarily local, local. Um, but uh, it, it, it's a great lesson learned, uh, uh, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. And um, again, I talk about our new CEO, but he's very clear on, you know, he wants to know, and it doesn't quite work that easy, but he's keen to know, he's like, at what wind speed am I sending staff home? Like, he wants us to have it all planned out. And I'm like, well, my, you know, if the flood comes first and the water comes up, we're sending them home first before wind speed gets to 100k an hour. But, He's, he's very much detail type focus and there needs to be a plan for everything that we're dealing with. Uh, similarly with the blue-green algae that uh, uh, might occur again this summer, the bloom might occur, and he, uh, he's like, I want to do graphics on, you know, when there's 120,000 of these per milliliter, what that means for the community, when there's 150, so that it's really clear and the messaging is clear and the community be aware because what will happen is we can still provide clean drinking water, we just can't provide as much because we can't produce it as quickly. So we need people to be, you know, not water their lawns and those types of things. Um, so let's be really clear with how that messaging looks like and what the triggers are, and then people will be aware of it ahead of time rather than, hey, all of a sudden, don't turn your showers on. Uh, I know, like, uh, Mackay, Prospine, Rockhampton, because they've been affected the last few years are going towards similar structures. Um, not necessarily as well-funded as all of this, but um, I know they're going towards similar structures because of uh, uh, similar disasters happening in, in their local areas and they can't afford to continually reinvent the wheel. So I know they've gone towards a model like this. Uh, Cairns is pretty good, but they've got uh, 51 FNQR and HMAS Cairns uh, up there. So. 
Um, they, they don't necessarily, uh, to, to my knowledge, Claudia might uh, know more, uh, it's not like they're stovepipe, but they don't necessarily share information yeah. and we could be accused of that in the military as well. Uh, like in 2CAV Regiment, I'm sure you're doing something that uh, could be meaningful, but uh, 2nd 14th might necessarily know about it. I think it's in a similar vein to that. Uh, mm. Is it? Yes. Is that, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, when it comes to sharing and just collaborating, it's a bit challenging sometimes. Yeah, everyone gets busy in their own little world. Mm. And, mm. Yeah. yeah. So there is another question over here. Yeah, implementation of Having worked with defence and what and other things that sort of popped up as well, they have. And I guess it's yeah about. Um, there's a lot. I guess yeah, we talk about a lot, but there's lots of technology that's changing all the time. So whether it's you know drones or the there's really low cost sensors. But prior, it probably was a little bit more expensive to have river gauges and sensors that provide all that data back to us. Now that technology is so cheap with the Internet of Things that we've, got, we've put a whole bunch of sensors in our sewers. So our sewers give us a good indication of you know, the flood coming up as well because there's lots of infiltration sewers. So we've got that. We've got cameras on uh, rivers and bridge crossings now that all go back to the LDCC. So you can make a lot better informed decisions. Similarly with all the sensors that we have around the dam wall, um, rather than having someone physically at the dam ringing in, yeah, we've got it all patched back and we can make much better informed decisions quicker. So I guess we spoke about that before, that data. Yeah, sometimes you can have too much data and you try to make sense of it all. But I guess in times of disasters, you want to be really clear with what data is important to you. And through the military appreciation process, when you're working out your triggers and what information you need, then that sort of gives you the idea of what data it is that you need. So similarly, you spoke about the blue-green algae. We're going to have... We, we sample the dam now, we sample it twice a week. It's a manual process. Someone gets in a boat, goes out in the middle of the dam, takes a sample, comes back, brings back to the lab. So there's, now there's real-time monitoring buoys. Um, so we've just got the go-ahead now, try to install some of those, which will just provide us real-time data on you know, dissolved oxygen in the dam, the temperature, the water temperature, that type of stuff. And then we can go get other samples as we need, but at least we can always give us an indication, hey, the water, Temperature is just spiking. Let's go get some extra testing now. Yeah. So being a bit smarter with some of the stuff we have, yeah. And like COVID has sort of driven that as well. You know, I don't know if you guys had rules, but we had rules. Um, you know, we could only have rather like normally a crew truck would have four people in a truck, and now we can only have two. And so we people driving in all sorts of different vehicles and not knowing where they were. So, but just having like. We had checking codes now in our vehicles that we know who's driving, who's where, um, just because it's really a fast-moving beast in terms of trying to make sure people were safe. Um, just being a bit smart about how we did it. But yeah, there's lots of there's lots of great technology out there, and it's it's a bit of a challenge sometimes just understanding it all, but yeah, and implementing it. And through the red tape, <laughs> getting it approved by the IT departments. The other issue. My final question asked uh, 
Brent Tate uh, yesterday because he's a 2006 Premiership winner with Brisbane Broncos. Uh, I thought uh, under coach Bennett that Brisbane would have had a master plan. They would have had everything worked out, you know, the number of points per game they needed to score to win, etc., etc. Found out that uh, eight weeks out from the finals, uh, uh, looked like they weren't even going to make the finals. Uh, Coach Bennett sacked two popular players uh, who weren't towing the line. Um, they had a meeting, decided to improve, improve, won the premiership. When you won the championship, uh, what was your plan? And talk us through the ups and downs of the year. Mm. So we had... Uh... <coughs> So we had, so I took over the team. We had won back-to-back -back championships, so it was a lot of pressure to do well. So my rookie season, we 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 made the playoffs, but we finished, uh, we lost in the semi. Um, and then the next year was the year we won. So I had I, I changed a few of the players on the team, and in between those two teams, so um, Susie was clearly our best player, and so I spoke about that. So managing all those personalities sometimes is, is a bit of a challenge, and. Um, in that team when we finished fourth, you know, some people will just, uh, what's a good word to say, but I guess, yeah, through a little bit, yeah, their influence wasn't always positive, would be a better way to say it. Um, and yeah, they'd get upset and they'd go home, because we had them all, all the girls were responsible, we were responsible by Quest, so we had seven of them, which probably isn't a great thing, but seven of them living in the same accommodation down the strand. So it's easy to go home after training, be like, oh, fucking those, you know, and then just, have nice big bitch sessions. And so I think in those times, it's really important to have people be like, no, just get off the chest, but we're done now and move on and not allow that. So, you know, that, that standard you walk past it, but you accept. So you need those good leaders within that group to be like, oh, it's, that's not helping any of us. You sitting here bitching for an hour about Susie because without Susie, we're not winning anything. And, um, and it was actually my husband. I remember he wasn't on the coaching staff then, but we had a game down in, in Adelaide who was the worst team in the league. They hadn't won a game. You know, and we were in the top four. And we fought with ourselves for about 35 minutes of the game. And then the last five minutes, we decided to turn the shit on and win the game. And I remember coming home being so frustrated. And I'm like, oh, Susie, this and blah, blah. And the players are bitching about this and blah, blah. And Mike, my husband, was like, you tell all those players to shut up because without Susie, they're not winning anything. So they need to yeah, understand how they're going to work with her better. Anyway, so we, because you can do that as a coach, you can do that less as a general manager, just get rid of people. So we got rid of two or three of those poor influences, brought in some players that were going to buy into what the culture and the vision was, especially that selflessness bit, which is putting the team, the team's needs ahead of your needs. And that was a key thing that we sold that year and the year that we won that championship. So we had, we also had two American imports that were quite good, but sometimes again with American imports because they're not a you know, different culture. They're coming in at the last minute. Um, it's important for them to get high point average in school because that means they'll get another contract the next year. So it's, yeah, we were really lucky that there's two people we recruited and there was a lot of work that goes into that, but that the two players that were recruited from America body that selflessness and that they were willing to, you know, not just be black holes and shoot the ball all the time, but to be part of that game plan. Uh, and that was a real key. 
And I think, you know, we're kind of lucky there because sometimes, you know, Americans aren't really here for the whole time, so we just hit the season and they bugger off. Uh, but the two that we had were great, and they're body in. And whether that's, you know, because like I said, we spoke about it every day, it was a big part of our uh, practice. Uh, it was just talking about our culture and how we're going to do it together and how we're going to put the team ahead of our own needs. So whether that obviously influenced them, uh, we had some good leaders with Susie and Mikhail, et cetera, uh, but they bought in, so that really helped. And then uh, the other big plan, so we had to, well, we had Susie, so they, they, I don't know if you guys have heard of Liz Cambridge, so she, she played on the team that we had to beat to win. So she's six foot eight, so she makes Susie look small. Um, very, very good. You know, the first female that dunked in the Olympics, uh, but easily probably the only player in the world that can defend her is Susie, I think. And uh, so we're really lucky that Susie got under her skin and did a good job. So much so that Liz punched her in the middle of the game one time and dropped her to the ground. But I think those were some of the key things that led to that success. We, everyone bought into that vision and no one, no one disrupted it. And as soon as someone got kind of got out of line, teammates had to say, hey, remember, we're all in this together and that's our goal. So I think um, we did a lot of preparation with uh, Brent Goris, who was our trainer. So the, that year, the season got shortened. Um, so games where we were playing three games a week, which is really high physical load. And we needed, we needed players, so we, we, had, we knew we'd have less training time. So how we were educating the players, so I spoke about lots of video, uh, lots of one-on-one -on -one meetings rather than time before, because we didn't want them on their feet as much either, uh, just to reduce that load on them. And then the really important thing that we had to put in because the load was so big was just the recovery was so much more important. So we, again, we spoke about that a lot. Uh, but things we did, so, and it sounds silly, but we, we gave them, um, so we had a list, so if you, if you did leg drains, you know, we sit on the wall with your legs up, that was two points. I think if you did an ice bath for 10 minutes, that was 10 points. Um, if you ate a banana, that was one point. All these recovery things, if you ice, um, you had a series of points, and every player had to get 12 points after every game. And we graphed it, and we would just put it in the group chat so people knew. And then they would just hold themselves accountable to that. So I've never had, because that's the biggest challenge as a coach is always following up. Hey, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? So the more that you can drive that behavior from within and themselves holding each other accountable, just makes your job a lot easier. So we had that implemented and it, what it did is it did work really well. They, yeah, they'd go to training, they'd train, they'd finish training and then you'd see eight of them sitting on the wall, legs up having a hydrolyte. Yeah, block, whatever it was. So they're all getting their points and they're holding each other accountable. So a few things like that really helped. Yeah. Sure. Thanks. All right. Um, so on behalf of the group and uh, the COVID audience uh, online, uh, I'd like to thank you uh, for the insights you've expressed to us uh, this afternoon. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed it. And on a personal note, uh, uh, Claudia and Susie um, uh, at my house were monumental f fans, not of basketball, but of uh, women doing great and being great influencers and role models. And Claudia is certainly one of those, and Susie Bakovic is another one who we really respect in our house. Uh, never thought I'd get to meet you, but uh, thanks for the uh, 
the job this afternoon and thanks for the wisdom that you've imparted upon us. Thank you so much.